This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Tom Ome. Hi, I'm Julie from Forgotten Classics and A Good Story is Hard to Find Podcasts. Hello, and I'm Mr. Jim Moon. And we're going to talk about the 1901, I believe, novel, The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And uh, do you guys know why he was knighted? I was reading about this yesterday. No. Um, <laughs> it wasn't for his writing on... on Something Tre- about fairies? No, it was... <laughs> <laughs> no. It was, it was in defense of uh, Britain after people getting upset about uh, the Boer War. And, really? Yeah, I mean, and, you know, that's the war where they were doing sort of concentration camps and stuff. Yeah. And, um, it, it was getting, like, a lot, lot of uh, negative press. Uh, and so he wrote a a pamphlet in defense of Britain's actions in the Boer War, and that's what's got that's what got him knighted. So the political <laughs> not Sherlock stuff, Holmes, not the, not the art stuff. Yeah, that's insane. Well, you know, it might have been you know in addition to all of the, <laughs> but the yeah, yeah. thing that put him over the top was the uh, the def- defense of World War. Uh, sorry, d- defense of the Boer War. <laughs> Some war. Yeah. Yeah. Now, speaking of which, um, one of the curious things that I was wondering about is why is uh, uh, and this I, I I know now, but I didn't understand at the time. Why is Sir Henry Baskerville uh, got a sir in front of him when he he just arrived in England like ten minutes ago? <laughs> Wasn't that the title that goes yeah. with the word? Yeah, yeah. it's an inherited was... position, isn't it? Cause, um, he comes yeah. back to claim his inheritance and. Um... After Sir Charles has died, and so the title actually passes to him along with the estate. That's how it works. Right. He's 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 um the most minor of lords. He's a baronet, right? And and mm. the title for that is not Lord, you know, Baskerville. It's Sir Bas Sir Baskerville. Oh, okay. Which is kind I can't of, keep track of that. Yeah, it's it's sort of uh, I, I mean, it makes a little more sense and. If you listen to the family history, they're, they're all they're playing very minor roles in sort of government history. Mm-hmm. This guy was in the assistant to an admiral in the in the Caribbean, and this guy did this. But yeah, it, it's it's tr- I guess to hold up the plausibility of of the story. Um, well, yeah, because I was impressed by the fact that it was repeatedly emphasized how important it was for him or whoever was at the hall to be in the neighborhood and to be part of the community, because without it, there wasn't going to be um, what benevolent donations and somebody to kind of help hold things together and raise the people mm-hmm. above this level of stone age poverty. It seemed like that they keep talking oh, about it. The trickle down uh, effect, because you know, the inheritance on, yeah. on, on how much uh, Henry Baskerville brought out of, out of South that, is it Henry? No, it's the Charles. Charles, who brought out of South America, it's it's like uh, he's almost a billionaire, right? <laughs> it's like which was also surprising. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he's gonna he's gonna employ some local people fixing up that estate for sure. 
Well, and they talked about how benevolent he was to the community and how they all really hoped that Henry would um, come come in, you know, the inheritor would come in and, and be a good steward, basically. Mm-hmm. So, um, Except that, was that lady. She, she wants him to leave. <laughs> well, that was mysterious. We all knew where the cutout <laughs> warning came from then. Yeah. I hadn't read this story for a really long time. When I was in high school, I guess, my parents had the complete Sherlock Holmes, and I read all of them. And recently, I've been going back through all of them. And so when this came up, it was perfect. And I as I was... You were reading every every Sherlock Holmes on Goodreads, right? Uh, yeah, I have been, because my daughter gave me the three giant volume annotated the new annotated Sherlock Holmes and so I started off reading the stories and then saying oh I was surprised at how in each set there were some I didn't remember and especially the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes uh, I was like I hardly remembered any of these these were all really grabbing me I was really pleased to experience them that way and then um, I was ready to start the novels and Tam asked if I wanted to do this so I was like oh perfect and I thought, well, this is one that I remember. And I was surprised at how many of the details I didn't remember. And so he would really surprise me, the mysterious silhouetted man on the moor. Why didn't I think that was Sherlock Holmes? I don't know. But I was like, oh, Sherlock Holmes, what? No wonder you let Watson tell the whole story by himself. Sneaky. That kind of thing. So I really enjoyed it. And um, plus, I, because I'd been listening to the short stories, this was nice because it took a little more time. It expanded things. There's um, a lot more suspects. Yeah. And I, I think this is probably the most influential on later people like Agatha Christie. It's a very Agatha Christie sort of mm-hmm. uh, lots of red herrings. And uh, there's a whole realized world full of people who've got motivation to do things. But almost in a locked room kind of way. Yeah, it's even. a locked moor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I suppose it is the prototype of the great English country house mystery, isn't it? Of um, mm-hmm. the remote location with a, a roster of colourful characters who anyone might be the villain. <laughs> mm-hmm. there, there was another one that I was reading prior to this one that actually I think is maybe like a, a it's very similar. It's called um, The Adventure of the Devil's Foot. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Uh, yes. that, is that set in the same moorland or is it a different, you know, sort of country uh moorish country but in in that case as well they're they've got um stone age uh relics nearby and holmes is in the neighborhood because he's he's i don't know he's coming down off of his drugs and dr watson's trying to get him straight or whatever but then they get sucked into this mystery (laughs) of a family uh that are sitting around a uh poker table or something they're playing whist or whatever it is and uh, one of them leaves, and then the next day, the three remaining ones are found with horrible smiles on their faces. Mm. And uh, the Joker did it. Yeah, <laughs> but I think it has something to do with something out of Africa as well. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, it's an African it, toxin, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And it's very similar. It's you know, it's got the estate. Uh, who's who's going to get the money? And if I'm right, yeah. Devil's Foot set in Cornwall, which is like yeah, the next county it. down from Devon, and mm-hmm. so it shares the same sort of moorland and the same sort of uh, atmosphere of <clears throat> tours and prehistoric yeah. ruins on the moors. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and I was reading that um, Conan Doyle was not intending to make this a Sherlock Holmes story. He wanted to write something sort of, you know, creepy and ghastly and that sort of thing. And then said, ah, now it's easier just to, you know, book. because it, there was it was a cool story, but there wasn't uh, like a central figure to, you know, make it a fun sort of driving story. I mean, the Hound of the Baskervilles yeah, or the, the Devil's Hound of Foot? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, well, and in fact, I was just kind of glancing over the foreword to this, my version of the Hound of the Baskervilles, and I realize it says um, that he wrote this after it came out after Holmes had been killed off mm-hmm. by Professor Moriarty. And everybody's like, yes, a new one. And then they go, oh, it's set before then. Curses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't continue his um, stories. You know, we don't know what happened. Uh, this was will he, will he live so again? Popular. Apparently, the, yeah. the U.S. publishers offered him so much money, he just said, yeah, fine, I'll write some more. <laughs> <laughs> and figure out how to bring him back to life. Yeah. Which I guess is a good thing. I mean... I'm not a big fan of series, but I do like the Sherlock Holmes series. And I think it's because it there's something different about a mystery series as opposed to just a, you know, another series with a character. Because really the, the mystery is the central element that we're following, I think. Well, well and the personality, I mean, oh, go ahead. Well, yeah, I think with the... It, the problem with like a lot of like serial adventures I find you put a hero through so much, you think, Christ, what can happen to this poor sod next? Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> um, whereas when you've got like detective fiction, it is as you say it's about the cases, and it's kind of logical they can have many, many such cases. Yeah, the, the Sherlock Holmes doesn't fundamentally change as a character from no. beginning to end. Well, and to me, reading these. I'm just like, well, he's Mr. Spock, essentially. He's that remote person who you're fascinated by, you want to know more about, but he kind of holds himself a bit aloof. So there's the continual fascination, and you have the connection with him through Dr. Watson, but poor Dr. Watson never gets everything, or in fact, a lot of times hardly gets anything. And that's kind of why I liked this book, too, because Watson is left on his own so long, and he's making the right uh, choices of what to look into and how to investigate things, and I don't. Know, I'm not sure he couldn't have solved it without uh, Holmes at all. I mean, he was he was right on the right track of everything, right? He's a little mm-hmm. little behind. He hasn't done the uh, extensive uh, non field work stuff. He's 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 busy, you know, shepherding the guy around. But he he's on Laura Lyons's case. He's he's uh, suspicious of. Barrymore, rightly so, right? Right, and Stapleton. And well, no, was he suspicious? Yeah, of Stapleton? yeah, yeah. He, um, yeah. It was. He just hadn't. He he didn't know he was, <laughs> but we knew he was. Right? Yeah, because he's talking about describing them, and I mean, maybe it's because he's doing it for Holmes in those mm-hmm. letters and stuff. But he's totally on the. That's one of the things that really bothers me about adaptations. And Tam, you were saying you'd seen the uh, Clive Marison. Uh, Basil Rathbone version. Right. They turn him into like a bumbling idiot. Mm. Right. And he's not, I mean, I don't think that there's any, he's only like dumb and he's not really dumb. He's only dumb in comparison to Sherlock Holmes's, you know, genius. And he's even dumb. He's just, he's more practical than anything else. He's just sort of straight ahead, straight shooter. Yeah. I think even Lestrade in the movies is 
made out to be a bungler too. Yeah, and I I think they do that, and so it it makes it more. It's like a simpler version of contrasting the the genius of Holmes with mm-hmm. the idiots around him. But I don't think that helps ultimately. I think if if everybody's smart, it brings everybody up in the game. And that's kind of one of the things I really enjoyed about the very introduction to this, where all they're going by is the guy's walking mm-hmm. stick that he left behind, and so. In every case, Holmes is going, well, you're you're so enlightening because everything you said points me in the right direction because what you said is wrong. But then you find out he wasn't right all the way That's either. Right. And he yeah. he made a mistake. He thought it was when he left the hospital that he got the stick. But actually, it was on his, his marriage, right? And that he left because he was unambitious, not because he got married and all. So he was and he kind of was able to laugh at himself. Yeah, and he has I, I liked that. I, I mean, that's the thing is he's he's making jokes quite a bit. At one point, um, he's when he says, "Oh, we're going to get stapled." Then what does he say? He says, "We'll have him pinned to a card soon." I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like one of his mods. Well, or even when um, that moment, and I have to say, since I was listening to the Derek Jacobi version. And he says, oh, cabman, tell me, what was this fellow's name? Oh, he told it to me. It's Sherlock Holmes. And there's this silence. And then he just bursts out laughing and goes, ooh, a foeman worthy of our steel. Well, you know, he doesn't get mad. He says, yeah, um, I can feel the foil, right? Yeah. Like, um, he, there's uh, a lot of the humor, though, is not just Sherlock Holmes. It's also, um, and this is one of the things that made me say we got to do this as a show, um, is is just Arthur Conan Doyle is really funny. So yes. one of the things that I was I, I was doing with my student, I was doing this story with my student in the classic comics yeah. version, and mm. we're reading it. And I said, okay, so look at these character names. And I said, okay, so there's Doctor Mortimer, right? Uh, what's a Mortimer? <laughs> That's a guy who is not very good at being a doctor. He kills all his patients. Right. Uh-huh. Well, Mort, yeah, That's like death. Right. And then, death. and then they go to the the house and they meet Barrymore, <laughs> and they say, well, "What's he about?" Well, he buries more bodies. <laughs> <laughs> and then you say, "Okay, that's just a coincidence." And then we get uh, Doctor uh, Mister Franklin. The he's the um, he's the uh, teles- telescopist. You know the oh, right, right. astronomer who's always suing mm-hmm. people. Uh, this and he's very frank. Yes, he's very frank. Well, his, his name is Frank Land, right? And of course, he's oh, okay. He's using his telescope to look at everybody's business, right? But mm. but that's not the funny one. The really funny one is his house is called is called Laughter House. <laughs> oh, I did. You know, see, this is why this is good. I hadn't picked up on this. And Miss Laura Lyons, she lies the whole way through her story. She's totally lying. The only person without a funny name, uh, other than Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson, I guess the Baskervilles, is um, is our actual uh, villain, right? But he, his house, if you remember his house's name, it's Mary Pitt. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like the. Those aren't accidents because they're just too funny, right? But you well, don't notice it while you're reading it. It's just yeah. very straight ahead. Yeah. Well, and I have to say, I like this is just a little separate path, but I enjoy Doyle's other writing too, you know, his mm-hmm. Professor Challenger stuff. I want at least the first two. Yeah. 
where they they find the lost uh, plateau of dinosaurs in South America and the the poison belt mm-hmm. where the earth is going through a poisonous belt of gas and we're all going to die. Mm-hmm. But um, and then he also wrote he was very proud of his historical books. And There's you wonder how much of that's all woven in here. That's huh? uh, the white company is one of the yes, mm. which I loved the white company because that one is hilarious. I listened to the LibriVox version, and especially in the first part where this young boy who's been raised in the monastery through various various circumstances, he leaves and he encounters the real world, and I was just laughing my head off. I think I, I think I read that LibriVox version as well because it's it, yeah, it seems kind of familiar. It's it's a uh, it's like they go off to crusade or something, don't they? Yes, eventually they go off to the crusades because he goes to see his brother, who's a, a horrible person, and says, "You're not getting any of the inheritance." So he's he takes his band of little friends, or they take him, and they go off to the crusades. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I can see why you know those historical ones are not as popular as the Sherlock Holmes because Sherlock Holmes is it's it's just so I guess innovative mm-hmm. and he he didn't strictly speaking invent the first detective story but basically he did I mean in the same way that H.G. Wells is inventing science fiction this guy's inventing uh the entire mystery genre really it's pretty and impressive. the popular series and everything yeah well, also one other bit of humor that I really didn't expect Dr. Watson to say this ever. And so I just laughed out loud was when he was talking to somebody, he was talking to Dr. Mortimer, who's asking him a lot of questions he doesn't even want to talk about. And he says, he, when Mortimer pressed his questions to an inconvenient extent, I asked him casually to what type Franklin's skull belonged. <laughs> <laughs> and so heard nothing but craniology right. for the rest of our drive. I have not lived for years with Sherlock Holmes for nothing. And I was like, oh, my gosh, how many times did he do that to Sherlock Holmes? Yeah. Not the cigarette. No, I think, I think that, no, I think that, that, that he's using a technique Sherlock Holmes would use. That's one way to take it. I, yeah, that's the way I, I took it. The other way. I, I could see it going the other way as well. Yeah. Um, by the way, I think this is very fascinating. Like the, each of the each of the suspects, in a sense, has a scientific preoccupation. Um, <laughs> Laura Lyons doesn't now, but she's kind of a, uh, she's more of a peripheral suspect in a certain sense. But think about it this way. Franklin, right, the guy who's always suing everybody, he's an astronomer. Um, he's, you know, star- supposed to be staring up at the stars every night. He's staring at the land and looking at what people's business is, but he's supposed to be as an astronomer. Then there's uh, the the insectologist, what were they? Ent- etymologist, mm-hmm. Etymolo- no. entomologist. That's right, entomologist of um, uh, the what's his name? Crap. <laughs> Our Stapleton. Pretty right? sure that's not his name. Yeah, Stapleton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he's not crap. Um, Stapleton's an entomologist, and we find out later on that he had even been, you know, a published expert. There's a moth named after him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's our Mortimer, and he's an expert on skulls. Um, and he's also very interested in in the uh, atavism. He, if you remember near the beginning of the book, they look up Stapleton while they're waiting for him to show up to get his, his walking stick. 
and they read his sort of curriculum vitae. And one of the things uh, that comes up is a, a paper he wrote called um, Some Throwbacks to Atavism, um, some curious uh, cases. Oh, yeah. Oh, is disease regression is one of his papers. And, okay. And of course, this is actually sort of the theme of the book because our Stapleton guy is supposed to look like Hugo, uh, the evil Baskerville, but he also acts like Hugo, right? Mm-hmm. He's got that temper. Yeah, he's got a horrible temper, as does, you can see it a little bit in um, uh, our Henry Baskerville as well. He's a bit intemperate sometimes, but he also, you know, he can get past it. But they've both got sort of that red anger that comes, overtakes them. And it's it's kind of like a, uh, I mean, it's even in the landscape. They're always talking about, uh, especially Mortimer's always talking about the people who lived in those huts, you know, those stones. A lot, yeah. And and it's it's, I mean, it's pretty cool. The the theme goes even into. Barrymore's um, family, right? The Seldons uh, are, you know, what caused that um, Notting Hill murderer to do those murders? Is it right. nature or nurture? Well, the the sister sounded like she she spoiled him, right? Yes, uh, they put it down to nurture, mm, definitely. Yeah, but I mean, you uh, you spoiled him to death, so he, he went out and murdered people? I don't think that's how it works exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you gave him too much candy, now he wants to kill everybody for their candy? <laughs> it doesn't sound right. <laughs> but it's, because it's not the, because he's not making a positive statement of science, um, it doesn't sort of feel like that's what it's about. But those background themes really lift up the whole whole um, story for me. Uh, like just seeing them come back again and again and again is very, you can feel like, oh, wow, this is really super awesome writing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's part like, of the, the gothic tropes that he's using. So sure. A common gothic theme is the idea of the sins of the fathers and sure. the ancestral curses. And he's sort of taking a proper literal ancestral curse with the phantom hound, but he's overlaying it with this idea of hereditary inherited traits and <laughs> yeah uh, there's some um, other similar ones lovecraft does that in uh, the rats in the walls right a guy uh, a guy comes from the united states to take oh, over his ancestral right. hall um he starts digging around underneath and then finds out the atavistic guilt that is responsible for the the fall of the family in England before is, you know, going to impact him as well. It's kind of a, I mean, it could have been written in response to this, at least partially. But But it's kind of all contrasted with Sherlock Holmes and even Dr. Watson, who are all like, we don't believe in the supernatural. Mm -hmm. There's nothing real going on. We will find out what it is. Um, And so you can have all these things, but it doesn't really matter because they're going to figure it out and, who cares? Yeah, the ghost, the ghost, the ghost story is still viable at this time, but this is a story that says nope, ghost stories ain't viable. And in fact, all of those 
Sherlock Holmes stories really are like that. There's one with the Sussex vampire, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is the one. Yeah. Yes, I loved mm-hmm. that one. There's a there's a couple <laughs> yeah. of you know that say well maybe, but uh, in general it's all like Sherlock Holmes doesn't say uh, it's totally not it's totally not possible. He says well if it is if it is possible I can't do anything about it because it's supernatural. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but let's just assume that the uh, I, like he doesn't dismiss the possibility that there's a ghost dog from hell out there. But he says, uh, you know, once once I saw the boot was was stolen the second right. time, mm. I knew that it had to be a real dog. <laughs> well, also, he, he makes the extremely, he applies logic to it, which I loved. He says, well, why worry about if he's going to go to the moors or stay here? If the devil's after him, he's everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't run from him. He'll get you here as much as there. Do what you want. And so it's like, well, it could happen. But in that case... Think about what that means. Mm-hmm. So I loved that point. This kind of reminded me of the the uh, Scooby Doo cartoon. Like always, <laughs> you think there's a ghost, but then at the end, it turns out to be some guy pretending to be a ghost. Yeah, it's sort of like a more uh, mind you, it's exactly a Scooby Doo plot, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's where thing you think Scooby Doo got that. Well, yeah. no, if you it goes it goes right back to the original Gothics. Um, yeah of uh, Walpole and particularly uh, Mrs. Radcliffe, in which they spun these elaborate mm-hmm. stories about crumbling castles and murder and ghosts and curses mm-hmm. and devil worship. And, and then at the end, it was all revealed to be uh, a ploy by the villain for various reasons. Right. And it's always, the supernatural is always explained away in the original gothics. Um, and so this is kind of, it's, just, it's just gothic through and through and through, more than people mm. realize, actually. <laughs> I, I mean, that whole subplot about the, the Selden and, and Barrymore, you know, signaling to mm-hmm. it's very much like, uh, you know, there's a mad woman in the attic sort of story. Mm. There's people oh, yeah. around the halls and you don't know. But in this case, it, it's not the owner of the house that that is, you know, running the show. It's it's the because the owner is the guy who's just showed up to find out what's going on. <laughs> well, it's all in that tradition too, although I guess this is before that tradition, but like Jamaica Inn by Daphne du Maurier, you know, you've got the lonely house and the the very odd people who live nearby. Or um the other book, um, since Jim Moon mentioned it, was uh, that it made me think of just now as Northanger Abbey. Mm-hmm. Which is yes, played yes. for humor, mm. but it's also using that same gothic trope and then going at the end, Art, well, you silly little girl. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with you? <laughs> that's that's Jane Austen writing a gothic Yes, album. Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I would say that the the gothic element is is another layer of that great, fun part of what uplifts a mystery. I mean, it it's... It's lifting up the whole story in the same way that all those details about atavism and such do. It, it makes it makes it like I'm trying to think. What's why is this the book that everybody reads of Sherlock Holmes? It, it's rated number one among Sherlockians or something. Of a uh, hundred works of Sherlock, uh, this is rated number one. It's. I was telling Julie before we started that the. I looked up a few years ago. It's the most adapted, most repeated movie. Um, there's dozens and dozens of movie versions. Most of them don't exist anymore. But um, I watched a uh, Tom Baker doing Sherlock Holmes in 
the Hound of the Baskervilles, mm-hmm. 1982. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that was pretty fun. Mm-hmm. There's the 1959 Hammer version. There's the Clive uh, Clive Marison uh, Basil Rathbone version from 1939, and of course there's, there's Jeremy Brett. There's another Peter Cushion version as well. Um, oh, is there? Yeah, because I mean he played Holmes in the Hammer version, but he also they played Holmes in a BBC. Uh, late 60s, early 70s home series. And he did another version of Hound of the Baskervilles in that as well. And the newest one has had a ver- season two, had the Hound of the Baskervilles. Mm-hmm. The Hounds of the of Baskerville or something like that? But... Something like that, yeah. Their take on it. Very different. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's, um, yeah, that series is interesting because it's all different, but it all harkens back enough that you see the connections and how they updated it. It's I love to watch it. It's not I got exactly Holmes. I got tired. Huh? Of it. I got tired of it. That show. And I think the reason is is because it's more about the characters than it is about the mystery. Mm-hmm. And I like the characters, but um, I <clears throat> I don't need them to like. I, I don't know. We're in the third season already. He's died and come back. Right? <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, uh, in the regular Sherlock Holmes series, that took like dozens of years. Mm. Um, and that, you know, that uh, awe that Watson has for Holmes coming back only lasts one story. It doesn't, yeah. you know, it's not, uh, it's more like they're in a romantic relationship and it feels more about the characters than about the the stories to me. Well, and I have to say, I did watch the first episode of the third season, and it was, you know, they had him playing a, a waiter, and he's going to surprise him. And I'm like, you know, Holmes was never that yeah. clueless. I mean, he was clueless, but he was never that clueless mm. about yeah. interpersonal relationships. And I was like, eh, you know, that's I don't much- really need to watch the rest of it, I think, maybe. That's exactly. Well, anyway. I was thinking why why this is the most popular. Maybe just from the title, you, you get that image of a, a hound from hell, and that's mm-hmm. <laughs> stirs something in people, and absolutely they can easily imagine imagine it. Um, in fact, uh, I wanted to talk about the connections between this and a couple other stories. There's there's um, Guy de Maupassant's story called The White Wolf, uh, also known as The oh. Wolf. Um, yeah. And that is a story um, really, I want to do that as a podcast, actually. But it, basically, the plot is is there's a dinner party uh, on the border between Germany and France. And everybody's uh, talking about the hunt that they were just on, except for the host. And the host is uh, very quiet during their talk about the hunt and the recreation of the hunt that they were just on. And at the end of the dinner party, or <laughs> I guess this would end the dinner party, he tells a story as to why he's not a big fan of hunts. And the reason is, a long time ago, uh, some of our ancestors, uh, two two of our ancestors in this very castle, um, were really big fans of hunt. They lived to, for the hunt. They hunted all the time. They loved hunting. In the morning, they would go out and shoot little birds while the rest of the hunters would get, get still be in bed. And then in the afternoon, they would, they would uh, you know, prepare all the guns and feed the dogs. And then in the evening, they'd go out and hunt. And they'd hunt, 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 hunt. <laughs> and then they, the, there comes word that there's a giant wolf in the neighborhood that's terrorizing people. And there's some precedents for this in history as well in uh, that part of France. Um, and the wolf 
is killing people and chewing off people's arms. And, and so the, the brothers decide to go out on the hunt and they go on the hunt and they hunt, 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 hunt. And one of them dies in the process of the hunt. But the other one just grabs his body, throws it over his salad and keep his uh, salad, throws it over his saddle <laughs> and keeps on riding after the wolf. And they hunt, hunt, hunt. He corners the wolf in a valley, jumps off his horse, puts his brother, props his brother up on a, a stone so that his brother can watch, even though his brain has been dashed out. Watch the the what what's going to ensue. He jumps off his horse, puts his brother up, throws down his gun runs over to the wolf and gently strangles it to death. Gently. Gently. <laughs> and, and then the end of the story is, and that's why we don't hunt in my family. <laughs> and then one of the women at the party says, still, it does, you know, drive up the blood. <laughs> <laughs> totally missing the point of the story or exactly <laughs> accepting the point of the story. Um, there's also the wild hunt which is like a uh, sort of German tradition. Right. Sort of what happens is there's a person that, do you know the story, Julie? Isn't it basically more of a kind of like a folktale that, you know, when the winds are certain that you stay inside because it's the wild hunt. And if you're outside, Mm -hmm. when they catch you, you, you will die. Either Um, become the hunted or you join the hunt. Yeah, it's like the super supernatural, either like a gods or fairies or something sort of a situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a hunt master who's like he's got elk horns or something. If you look mm. look in the Deities and Family Gods, uh, okay. Uh, well, it uh, goes back originally. It was Odin or Wotan, right? Um, and they would hunt the unworthy, <laughs> and mm-hmm. then it became um, it devolved devolved into various figures of that. Um, it's one of the origins of Santa Claus, actually, the man oh. who rides across the sky. And actually, in the original version, Odin would deliver presents to the to the worthy and then viciously oh. hunt down the unworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And so in, oh. Brit- in Britain, you have Hearn the Hunter and various other sort of lesser sort of figures who were often from local legend or, or pagan or pagan gods like Wayland or Hearn who have been sort of demoted to the ranks of sort of local ghoul or fairy who are masters of the hunt. And certainly for Pound the Baskervilles, the Dartmoor has, you know, a, a legend of the Yes Hounds, the Yeth Hounds and the Wish Hounds, who are a wild hunt, who are, say, on dark nights roam across the landscape hunting the souls of the unbaptized and and recently deceased sinners. Mm-hmm. Um, that's and that's one wild church, hunt. Everybody. Well, yeah, I mean, that's one... Um, <laughs> That's that's kind of one one variation of the wild hunt theme is that they hunt when a sinner dies and um, if he can outrun them till dawn he'll get to heaven if not <laughs> well feel oh. <laughs> he's hellhound chowder. <laughs> that's a- picked up in the book that more much very modern book the woodcutter. I don't know if any of you've read that. No, it's really an amazing. Reach use of all those kinds of stories, but woven together into a new story that somehow, I don't know how that this author did it, but she maintained the feel of all those old stories with integrity hmm. while using a lot of those strands to tell something completely new. I don't, I don't know how best to describe it. Sorry, but the wild hunt is a big part of that. There's- Who's the author? Kate Delaney. Kate Danley? Yeah, that's it. Danley, okay. I think. Yeah. 
and I was going to review the audiobook, but I listened to it and was and I guess I should still do it, Jesse, because I know it doesn't matter if it's good or not. But the uh, the reader yeah, read it with such yeah. emphasis on every line that eventually <laughs> I was tired of listening to her. <laughs> so I'll do a little review for you. Well, of you can it. you can finish it in paper if you have to. Oh, I because I read it first and then I went, oh, there's an audio version, and so I need to review it. Although I didn't finish listening to the audio. Well, just, just so say I couldn't finish. I'll it. put that in there. Yeah. And say, read it in paper. Mm-hmm. Or re-record it for somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some, it, it's because she could do accents beautifully. It's just she, you know, every line was like this. <laughs> <laughs> just eventually I was like tired. Um, that, that's acting. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> evidently. So the I wanted to also point out that that. Uh, the theme of the wild hunt and sort of the deal with the devil, uh, you know, outrun the devil sort of thing. Uh, it also transferred to North America. The uh, Quebecois have, uh, le, there's a story called Le, le Chaise Gali. It's like, oh. uh, it's a, uh, it's a story of a bunch of um, uh, voyagers, the uh, fur traders who uh, make a deal with the devil to uh, be able to canoe through the sky so they then get back home for mm. Christmas. Uh, I think it's a New Year's or Christmas party. Um, so it's that the the story we get of the Hound of the Baskervilles at the beginning, you know, the letter. Um, uh, it's a little unclear to me. Is it the Hugo Jr.'s letter? Is that who it is? Because it's not Hugo's, right? Oh, the one where that, that had another part that I love so much where it's almost like a a duel between Dr. Mortimer and Holmes, you mean, where he says, I have in my pocket a manuscript, said Dr. James Mortimer. <laughs> I observed it as you entered the room, said Holmes. <laughs> it is an old manuscript, early 18th century, unless it's a forgery. How can you say that, sir? You have presented an inch or two of it to my examination all the time you've been talking. It would be a poor expert who could not give the date of a document within a decade or so. You know, he may have possibly read my little monograph on the subject. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> every, every time somebody comes into Sherlock Holmes's uh, study, there's always something sticking out of their pocket that we can't see, but he can't. <laughs> because, like, uh, I was reading one the other day, and he says, I see you return on the, <laughs> I see you return on tonight's train. Why, oh, Mr. Holmes, how did you know that? I can see the return stub in your in your glove. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, well, if I was able to see all these papers sticking out of the people's But yet bags. no one else does it. So, you know, you still have to give him his props. He's paying attention. It's true, but I wish people would leave their clues a little more obviously for me. <laughs> <laughs> I see you, sir. You are a woodcutter by the <laughs> your hands. Yeah, exactly. The way one nail is formed. That's right. Um, yeah, this, the direct line from Hugo Baskerville and the document is actually written by, I thought, there's a bunch of other Baskervilles, like a John Baskerville. And, yeah. Um, I assume it's like the fa- like it's somebody talking about the his own father, and it's it's kind of like the way that it's done in that uh, yes. Guy de Maupassant story. It's this is a warning story, right? Don't. Yeah, he says I had it from my father. Right. Um, so the other thing that's interesting is what time of year is this story set? Anybody know? I was trying to figure it out because it, I, I, the newspaper account of of the death of Henry Baskerville, Henry, 
Mm. Charles. 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 Damn, not Henry. Charles Baskerville is, I think it's May, no, April or May 14th. Um, yes. And then uh, it was, it was that came out a few days after. And then some time has elapsed between when they were looking for uh, an heir who is su- supposed to be in the, in the Americas or in Canada. And uh, I can't remember now. It, does it say in the text whether it's Canada or the United States? Well, I thought it was Canada. Well, I know in every adaptation they say Canada, but I remember one one line in the text saying it was America. Well, you know, and it I, could have been the the large area. I mean, farming is is more Canada than U.S. even back then. Well, it, I don't for know Britain, for Britain though, right? That's oh oh the way they would have thought of it. Yeah, I mean. That's what's actually ruining England is is all the cheap imports from Canada of food. Well, there you go. But uh, um, yeah, I just had the impression it was fall. But I think that's the general environment of the story is, you know, that's when but, these these things happen. But there's the the butterfly, right? And the butterfly should be springtime, no? Well, not necessarily. It depends because in here, in Texas, in the fall, you know you're going to get this huge migration of monarchs. Mm. At a certain time of the fall, they're just everywhere. They're they're headed south. Yeah, they're going to Mexico. Now, I don't know in Britain what they'd be doing, but I suppose they could still be fluttering around, getting ready for whatever. The the flora and fauna of this story is also, I mean, I, I bet people have written dissertations on what's going on in in this book but uh, i've read my annotations i'm sure it has the there's a couple of things there's there's the the when he runs away from watson uh he's chasing a butterfly and the butterfly is uh cyclopides which of course is a, a real kind of butterfly but um it's also a cyclops Right. <laughs> and remember yeah. those stone, those stone houses, uh, they're so big that uh, it's arguable that they couldn't have been moved by people. Right. They would have to have been by oh, cyclopean yeah. stones. That was kind of fun. But I, I assume that the, those butterflies are actually there. And then the other one that was interesting is uh, the bittern. Um, mm-hmm. This is mentioned by Stapleton. Mm-hmm. As being a a, a, um, a bird that is near extinction, and so mm-hmm. they're not sure what, but it makes it a booming like. booming noise, and that that's what he's explaining. That <laughs> couldn't possibly be a hound. No, it must be a bird. It's a yeah, it's a bird. <laughs> um, apparently well, they, they are big birds. They're like herons, bitterns. Yeah, they're quite large, mm. but that's probably why they were going extinct. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, it does say, in my annotations, it says their foghorn-like call has given rise over the centuries to numerous superstitions. So that's legit, mm-hmm. evidently. And who writes these annotations? Um, this is, hold on, I should know this, Leslie S. Klinger, who is... Evidently, if you know about him, he is like all over Sherlock Holmes and always has been. 
And um, actually, this is a really great annotated version. The paper is nice. It's it's just very large if you wanted to read it in bed. But they've got tons of old illustrations from the original books mm-hmm. and the Strand magazine all throughout. And he's got really good notes. And the only problem I have with it is he chose to also include notes from that group of fans who act as if Sherlock Holmes was a real right. person. right. And I at first was like, oh, that's okay. And then I'm reading going, no, no, I don't care. I don't care what date Holmes would have done this on and why Watson would or wouldn't have been married to so-and-so. No one cares. Yeah. Moving on. So I just skipped those. It's, it's, it's kind of like learning the Klingon when watching Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that's right. That's right. But I was if like, you're an actor, but you don't need to do that if you're just watching the show. Yeah, that's nobody cares. Um, but I was just looking at this... It just says the, oh, okay, I'm sorry. I was looking for butterfly comments, but they were just talking about the family of butterflies that that belongs to, which is a huge, huge family of butterflies, evidently. That's all. Nobody cares. So. So. uh, But you were asking about, or you were saying, why would this be such um, a favorite story? And I was hmm. thinking about it going... When I was listening, I had forgotten the whole theme of the love story mm-hmm. between Sir Henry and is it e- Beryl Stapleton? Beryl Garcia Stapleton. <laughs> what? Beryl Garcia. Oh well, yes. Toward the end, we know that, but at the beginning, we just know it's Beryl. And I went, oh, what an old name! I love it. But so you've got that that you're interested in and then once you find out that she's actually stapleton's wife which was another point where i was like i should have seen that but i didn't um then i was worried the whole rest of the story about they obviously have a true love what's going to happen to them i think i think that henry i think it's only totally one-sided love because i no, because she, when she's being released from her bondage at the end, she says, is he okay? Is he all right? Did he make it? And they're like, oh, he ran into the swamp. And they're like, no, not him. Yeah. Sorry. There's that. There's that. You know, uh, so she I obviously, thought that was just genuine human you know, nope. for a murderer. I'm just telling you, she left him. Just deal with it. Okay. <laughs> but well, see, here's the thing. It got me involved to the point where whether you feel that way or not, I was worried about the love story. I was interested in, is this convict going to be caught? And I really admired Watson and Baskerville going off into going, well, we can't just leave him out there. He's very dangerous. We're going to go catch him. And, and then the Butler going, well, no, I promise he won't do this. And I'm like, you can't promise that for him. Go back out there and get him. So I, all those things out in those strands of that story, I was very engaged with all that. When I didn't know who it was that Sherlock Holmes was out there spying on everyone, I was like, oh my gosh, another player. Is it one of the, is it maybe Franklin? Is it, I was really engaged. Who are all these people? So you're, you're, you're trying to solve the mystery. Right. Well, and there's all these different levels. Well, actually, I was very sure I had listened to so many of those short stories from the minute they mentioned Roger Stapleton in South America. I was like, oh, it's him or a descendant of his (laughs) also wants the money done and done. Oh, it's probably Stapleton. That's the theme that comes up again and again in Sherlock Holmes. right? Right. Because, you know, you've only got so many reasons to kill someone. But then when Stapleton was introduced, I was like, well, unless someone else comes up, he's so prominent 
Um, but so for me, I was just like, well, let's just see if I'm right about that. But I was real interested in these other pieces of the story. So I think that's another thing is there's a lot to work with. It's very rich within this fairly short book. I I, I agree. I, although I'm very much dubious of, of how much that, um, uh, first of all, how long does it take for them to fall in love? Like 10 minutes? <laughs> it's like they're only there for a couple of weeks. At most. I don't want to go into too many details. But I could tell you my husband and I met, and two weeks later we were in love, and we've been married 30 years. But every time they have a conversation, Done. every time they have a conversation, it's she, she's saying, um, you need to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and, then he, and then he says, oh, my dear, you're... You're so beautiful in the more life. <laughs> <laughs> well, into that, then I'm going to bring the whole idea of we just watched American Hustle last night. Mm-hmm. And one of the repeated lines was, the more you deny someone, the more they want it. Well, and that's used as a con item all the way through or a con way to con somebody. And I'm like, well, that could have just made him more attracted. But I'm just saying, it doesn't matter whether or not you believe it, it's there. As it's, part defi- of the- it's definitely we're told that, you know, they're, they're having some sort of uh, romance. But they only meet a couple of times. Well, it could have been a flirtation. Yeah. They're interested. But th- that's because she's, like, desperately looking at him, like, trying to tell him telepathically. Let me have <laughs> this, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> Let me have this. <laughs> Give up. <laughs> Okay. Um, the, I guess it's the tropes of the romance novels at the time. Yeah, that's. I'm guessing. Oh, I guess that's why Jesse's being skeptical, and I'm like, no, they they did love each other. Let me ask you this, Benji. People always quick in fiction. Like. <laughs> well, let me no. Let me just ask you this: What's going to happen? Um, are, they're not going to get married, right? Well, you know, it may be later after he's well. They might meet again, and they might find it that true that, that's love. That's still out there. It could happen. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure that Stapleton's dead. I know in in the movies they tend to show him drowning, right in the in the mire, but in the book he's not drowned. Yeah. Did she say that she took the wants out, or she wished she had? I can't remember. That would have led him where he was supposed to go. I don't. I don't recall. She does mention the wands at the end, and I can't yeah, remember if she took them out or not. Path, yeah, I think she says she wished she did, but oh, okay. Did. Yeah. There's 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 a lot of open questions uh, about the ending. Um, I'm, the other thing is like, couldn't they have like they almost got poor uh, Baskerville killed, and it's not like <laughs> they had that much more evidence before. <laughs> the attack than they did after the attack. <laughs> All they have is the dog. Yeah, Holmes was pretty hard on himself about that, and I agreed. And he, he blames it on the weather, I guess, but... No, but he's like, oh, I can't believe I did this. This was... I shouldn't have done that. It all worked out in the end, I guess. Yeah. Um, the the most gruesome point I want to end on, maybe, is um, what happened to the, uh, the beagle? Was it the beagle? It's a curly-haired spaniel. The curly-haired spaniel. Yes. He got eaten. I know. Like, it was very sad. Oh. Well, Mortimer didn't seem to have missed him. We 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 didn't hear him come by. Hey, have you seen my spaniel? <laughs> no, my I thought he, no, I thought he did talk about his dog had disappeared and he was looking around for it. And I don't remember that. 
but in a manly way, he wouldn't have gone <laughs> everywhere. You know, he would have just asked where he went. I wandered off into the mire. Yeah, the other thing that was a bit uh, in that same, you know, animal killing sort of <laughs> element that's going on in this book, um, when Stapleton first meets Watson on the on the moor, he says, "Ah, yes, the pit pony, uh, not pit pony, a a, uh, a moor moor pony. I saw one drown yeah. yesterday." And then he says, "Oh, and look, there's another one drown." <laughs> He's like, "Damn." <laughs> <laughs> but he was also bragging that whole time about how old, nobody can navigate the moors except for me. I'm the only one. And he st- tries to downplay that, how much he's bragging about it a little later. But the way he does it is like he is really proud of himself um, about, you know, his ability to navigate through the, the mire into a places that nobody else can go. I was thinking, like, did he actually plant of that pony there just to show off how dangerous it was because one died yesterday and did he lead one another one down there it seems a kind of uh i mean unless there are tons of ponies out there i don't know that never occurred to me but he did have that ego because that's the same sort of a self-inflating person Absolutely. who says who wears the beard and says tell him i'm sherlock holmes that's you know. right that's right yeah you know. Showing off. I was also intrigued by how much of this story happens in London before you even get going to the Moors. And the fact that we're allowed to kind of see behind the scenes when Sherlock Holmes has his threads that he's casting out to see if he can find anything out. You know, where he dispatches Mm. the small boy. He's got all the different areas of inquiry. Yeah, that's uh, that's the first third of the book. It's pretty amazing how much. I like seeing it. Yeah, it's great stuff. I mean, figuring out figuring out how to find the hotel, right? Mm-hmm. That's great mm-hmm. stuff. Well, and the thing of when he was looking at the cutout message and said, oh, well, this is somebody who reads the Times. And right. then he's saying, well, you know, and he's talking about things like letting and that sort of thing. And I'm thinking, well, also the typeface, you know, that. Mm-hmm. But as somebody who works with type and stuff, I, I was like, oh, yeah, definitely. He, he drops a, a lot of those lines. There's one line he says that no true detective could call himself a detective if, <laughs> if he doesn't know all 75 cents in perfume. It's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. That's the one I'm thinking of. One of the annotated notes said, well, and by extension, although this isn't mentioned, that that um, sort of a scent, bergamo or whatever it was that was in there that he recognized, I can't remember now, he said – that would be more. I think it was. Okay, that would be more tropical, and therefore, since she was Spanish or Oops. South American, sorry, yeah. um, you know that, that would follow. She had the Garcia accent. She had never tripped anybody up, did it? Yeah, she uh, was well adapted. <laughs> the, All those years at that she, other school. Watson Watson says there's something tropical about her, as opposed <laughs> to her brother, and she's very dark haired, whereas he's fair haired. Hmm. Well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty um it's pretty well hidden though. I mean I, I think the red herrings is what makes it, you know, you're you've got so many possible criminals to think who it could be, you know, the guy who's suing everybody. There's Barry Moore, you can't trust him. He's always holding something back and he's lying about what he's doing upstairs in the hallways. Right. Well, you can't trust any of these people. Yeah, and poor Laura Lyons, who I was convinced until the whole thing was shown that she actually had lured Sir Henry or Henry there because um, she was a gold digger and she wanted to marry him because mm-hmm. she had so many financial problems and he was kind and 
Um, so it, yeah, it's there's all these very likely possibilities for you to think about. Yeah, and they've all got you know enough description so that we we think well, there's something there, right? Mm-hmm. And Stapleton actually is he's a he, oh, he's always turning up on the scene, but he's he's the the most prominent of all the of the of the possible suspects. But he's also in a sense he's the you don't see him as having any you you think his problem is that he doesn't want his sister to go away right it's not that yeah. as a um he, how would he benefit right yeah until you see the the portrait hey he's a stunning look <laughs> hugo he's a little weird but you know everybody out there is a little weird That's right. so all weirdos on the moor yeah Well, and oh, the other thing I really liked that you really never saw was um, when the convict is killed because he's wearing the set of clothes that were oh, that's great. originally Baskervilles, which is a wonderful talk about a red herring. But <laughs> Holmes's remorse at that moment, because you never usually see him fail his clients like that. Mm-hmm. It's usually personal. Oh, I, I didn't solve this or, you know, the few occasions of that. But um He's he is uh, I'm trying to find the spot where he says, I am more to blame than you, Watson. In order to have my case well rounded and complete, I have thrown away the life of my client. But but then he gets so deliriously happy when it turns out to be someone else. <laughs> yeah, oh thank goodness. <laughs> it's only a criminal. It's just a criminal, all good. Yeah. <laughs> Scared to death it. by <laughs> yeah. and and torn to shreds or his throat savaged by this beast. Um, I think he actually dances. Doesn't he say that? Speaking speaking of the beast, um, the hound (laughs) itself is is supposedly the size of a calf, small calf or something. It must be part Great Dane is all I can figure. It's it's a big dog. Um, His Great Danes are huge. The the interesting thing to me is is everybody says, uh, well, Holmes or Watson, they reach down to the dog and they... They touch it and they see ah the glowing the spirited hound it's it's just phosphorus it's like oh except wait a second phosphorus would burn the dog to death because that that glowing effect is is actually interaction with oxygen right oh okay I didn't know that dangerous but I think they did say it was a compound that's right he conveniently says oh and it has no scent. So that wouldn't hurt the, but yeah, actually the, the one scientific aspect of this story that explains all the ghostly dog appearances, it's impossible. You'd have to put some other black light or something, set up a big black light on the moor. (laughs) You could have phosphorescent paint. That was all the rage at one stage, particularly in Victorian Uh, England. Um, It's, uh, yeah, I'm not sure phosphorescent paint has phosphorus in it though, is it, doesn't it? Yeah, but it would still glow. Yeah, I, I guess because uh, they used it before um, they discovered radium, which provided an even better glow. Yeah, and oh they God. went absolutely crazy. There was radium in everything. There was a even radium. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, horrendous. I mean, it's not doing a scientific test. It doesn't have to be phosphorus. <laughs> and then everybody who worked in those radium factories was really sorry later. But yeah, kids, don't paint uh, yourself with phosphorus because the people using the radium condoms I worried about. <laughs> Uh, they, they had radium, radium pills, oh. radium toothpaste. Um, oh my lord! You will have the best smile ever <laughs> in the dark. 
Oh, goodness. Teeth are all going to fall out. <laughs> what I was thinking, too, though, is that comment about the phosphorus not being good for the dog on whatever level. Well, that kind of goes along with the fact the dog was kept half starved. That's true. And um, there's that's why it was so savage. It was not treated well at all. Yeah. But it so. should have turned on the master, not, not on some guy's think? boot. I guess he had his riding crop with him or whatever. Could beat it off. Look how he treated poor Beryl. Yeah. So he tied her up, and yeah, uh, yeah. I was thinking she tied herself up, but it sounded like there was no way no, no, that no. to happen. No, this, I he mean, knew she would have warned him because they were in love. She, she, but she's she's never all, all the way through the story. She's never willing to go that extra step. It's my husband who's trying to kill you, and my husband is actually pretending to be my brother. She she wants to she wants to not have the murder happen, but she doesn't want to. Uh, she doesn't want to get her husband in trouble. Well, that and the fact that they have a long history of them already having you run that school, right? And somebody died, a boy died, and there were a lot of problems with the school. So she's already been through this. So you don't know how culpable culpable she is in all that. Or if she's been cowed so long, she just doesn't dare do it. Because that would be consistent with a long pattern of abuse also. The, and being fairly isolated from anyone else who could help you. The explanation Holmes gives at the end as to their history, he says one thing that's kind of interesting. He says, on the journey from South America to England, uh, they met a tutor who was consumptive. <laughs> So they set up the school, and he's a great tutor. The only problem is he's no blood every five minutes all over the students. And then the the students die. So it's like he's taking, you know, and the school was very profitable until the students started dying. (laughs) That was really the worst for it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, did you like the way Holmes goes, well, you know, I've been working on all these cases in between. I'm not sure if I can remember all the details, <laughs> but to the best of my poor memory. And then he spews out this very long, complicated story. <laughs> I'm I, like, I think you remember everything. Do you remember the, the case that they were working on prior to the Hound of the Baskervilles? The case of the Vatican cameos. <laughs> oh, yeah, I did see that. <laughs> like what there's like a bunch of cameos yeah. like what are they a popes somebody yeah there's a catholic author who actually went through and looked at some of the titles of these cases that they toss off to give more background and took those stories and then wrote sherlock holmes stories involving him helping the pope him helping a cardinal him helping oh father brown from gk chesterton's <laughs> uh criminal main criminal who chesterton in the father brown stories you you know, that criminal reforms, but prior to that point, or I guess he's in jail, maybe he helps him too. And I read those and they actually weren't bad, you know, for Sherlock Holmesian type stories, a bit Catholic, but you know, as a Catholic author and a Catholic emphasis. So tossed off cases, you know, the ones that he's always saying, you know, during the redheaded league, ah, this reminds me of the case of, um, (laughs) there's one called the aluminium crutch. Yeah. Like, wow, what the hell is that going to be about? It's like, this is like, there's a, what, what, I, 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 it, it brings like, you say, I kind of want to want I want to kind of read that one. It's like the the case of the cardboard box. Actually, that is an actual case. It's like, cardboard box, really? Okay. 
I'll read that. No, I loved the way he'd do that. Oh, like that baronet we helped that time. Well, we must say no more of that one. Yeah. Moving on. And the horrible hound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's not really important. We'll talk about <laughs> Well, wow. because in the short stories, Watson's always saying, of the, you know, the huge amount of records I have, these are the 12 most interesting. Yeah. <laughs> he always finds more, though. I know. Well, and that's why I love where every so often they'll they'll put something Holmes says towards the end of his career, especially where he's really he's gone off and done beekeeping in the country. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. <laughs>